Chris Webster here, co-founder of the APN. I just wanted to thank you for supporting archaeological education and outreach. Please share this post across your socials so more can learn about our shared past. On to the episode. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Dirt Podcast is brought to you with support from the Archaeology Division of the American Anthropological Association. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And this week, we're headed down to the farm. The very, very old farm. We're going to talk about domesticated animals and how archaeologists recognize domestication in the archaeological record. That's right. Last week, it was pots in Amber's wheelhouse. Today, it's bones and animals in my wheelhouse. So bones. Domestication is a long process, and it's one that began thousands of years ago when humans first began to transition from a hunter-gatherer lifestyle to a more sedentary one. The domestication of plants, which we'll get into another time, and animals, if you think about it, was really the key to being able to stay in one place, because if you don't have to follow herds of animals around from season to season, but instead you can keep them with you, then you can do things like build permanent structures, towns, cities and all the things that come along with that um so we're talking about animal bones right we're talking about domesticated animals so domesticated animals means domesticated bones yeah yeah exactly so my training is in fact in the identification of animal bones so i'm going to take us through some of the ways that archaeologists identify domesticated versus wild animals through their remains and then we'll talk about a few case studies but first amber why don't you lay a little general information about domestication on all of us so you may have heard of this guy charles darwin Um, In 1868, he noted that domesticated animals each exhibited a similar set of physical and behavioral traits not seen in wild animals. And most surprisingly, those traits were consistent across several species. Um, Turns out it's not just mammals. Also other scientists. (laughs) What? (laughs) What? It's not just, it turns out it's not just mammals. Other scientists. (laughs) Mammals and yeah. scientists. It, no, um, I mean, if you if you get to the end of the sentence, it makes sense. <laughs> um, so since Darwin, other other scientists have um, added traits, added other traits specifically associated with domestic animals. So that suite of traits is known today as the domestication syndrome, um, a phrase coined by evolutionary biologist Adam Wilkins, and it includes increased tameness. Um, so they, you know, they just want to like go home, kick back, maybe have a glass of wine with dinner. Mm -hmm. They're not partying. Mm -hmm. Um, so increased tameness or reduced aggression, however you want to frame it. (laughs) Glass half empty, glass half angry. Like, Mm. um, the (laughs) coat color changes, um, including white spots on their faces and torsos, um, reductions in tooth size. Changes in the shape of the face, including shorter snouts and smaller jowls, um, curly tails and floppy ears. Um, Out of all 
Out of all the wild versions of domestic animals, only the elephant started out with floppy ears. Isn't that so sweet? Yeah, no flops. Um, more frequent estrus cycles and um, longer periods as juveniles. They, they become teens. Um, <laughs> and reductions in total brain size and complexity. So they're, they're cute and dumb. <laughs> they're cute we like. and dumb and not too toothy. Um, domestic mammals... Which share parts of this suite include the guinea pig, the dog, the cat, the ferret, the fox, the pig, the reindeer, the sheep, the goat, the cattle, the horse, the camel, and the alpaca, among many others. So we've already talked about the people who began the domestication process some 30,000 or more years ago in the case of dogs. So if you missed that episode about dogs, go check it out. Um, in the case of poppers, domestication efforts clearly focused on the reduction in fearful or aggressive responses to humans. Um, the other traits don't seem to have been intended or even necessarily good choices. Wouldn't you think that hunters would want a smarter dog or farmers <laughs> like a pig that grows up quickly? I don't know. Um, and who cares about floppy ears or curly tails apart from the entire internet? Um, but well. reduction in fearful or aggressive behavior has been found to be a prerequisite for animals to breed in captivity, let alone live close to us comfortably. I mean, I guess that would make sense. Yeah, an animal that's less likely to be afraid of humans is okay living closer to them and well, I was just thinking like their garbage. A, an animal that is less likely to like freak out is more likely to yeah. mate with another animal. Yeah, exactly. Just that reduction. So that reduction in fearful or aggressive behaviors is tied to a physiological change. They have smaller adrenal glands, which play a central role in the fear and stress responses of all animals. You can't get adrenochrome. What? From a domesticated animal. Okay. Oh, sorry. Wrong podcast. <laughs> that's, that's my I, conspiracy theory podcast that oh, I okay. don't host. Nope. It's just my internal monologue um and it seems that a lot of the physical traits like floppy ears and patchy coats um sort of came along for the ride with that reduction in aggression genetically speaking at least um sometimes groups of characteristics are genetically linked and it's not fully understood exactly which genes are coding for what traits like how um like colorblindness mm -hmm. is is genetically linked to the Y chromosome? Yeah. The sex-linked chromosome. Yeah. Thank you. Exactly. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> yeah. So another one of those traits that comes along with domestication is essentially increased cuteness. So the, the jargony term is pedomorphosis, meaning an adult animal retains traits of a juvenile. So rounder features, big eyes, things that make baby animals, including baby humans, so cute. So think about a wolf compared to a dog or a wild boar compared to a pot-bellied pig. You go from very pointy, angular features to softer, more snub-nosed features. So it's possible that humans learned to select for the animals that in adulthood looked cuter because that tended to go along with a more tractable or less aggressive personality. And often that change towards a cuter animal is recognizable in the skeleton, especially in the skull. So domesticated animals, particularly mammals that have this pedomorphic appearance, tend to have shorter faces. So again, think wolf versus pug. Oh, those poor, poor pugs. I know. Um, this is particularly true for pigs. Pugs? Pigs. Pugs. <laughs> In the archaeological record, 
pigs. If you look at the skull of a wild boar, it's got a very, very long pointed snout and the males have big curving tusks. Not as On cute. the other hand, no, super not cute. On the other hand, the skulls of domestic pigs are significantly shorter, often so much so that they actually don't have as many teeth as wild pigs. There's just not room for as many teeth. And the males don't have tusks that are quite as big. So I want to point out here. Still very scary, though. Yeah, a, a big male pig. Uh, you don't want to. I'm very mad. scared of pigs. They can be aggressive. Yeah, They're, I'm very scared of them. <laughs> okay, I promise never to <laughs> make you face down a pig. I mean, don't don't make any promises you can't keep because this is not the first time somebody said that to me. <laughs> wow. Okay. And then you find yourself in the pig barn at All right. the county fair, and just wow, so much. Well, screaming. Huh. Sorry, but about those flashbacks i guess this might be kind of a triggering episode for you pigs <laughs> so i want to point out uh before we go further that not only is domestication a process but it's something that happened at different times and in different ways with different animals all over the world plus people haven't always wanted the same things from their animals so domestication is a process of selection for specific traits and those traits aren't always consistent depending on what the person or the group of people want from their animals. So all of these changes that we're going to talk about um, are the result of this selective breeding. And while one group might want cows that are great milk producers, another group might be breeding giant muscly cows for labor or for meat. So cows, for example, from Iron Age Europe are going to look different from 18th century European cows or cows bred by nomadic groups in Africa. It's all quite complicated. But Amber, do you know what's not complicated? capitalism yep let's have an ad need to gain essential business skills to level up in your career then ucr university extensions professional certificate in heritage business management is the program for you join the first university of california online business program designed by and for cultural heritage professionals Enroll early and save. Visit extension.ucr.edu slash APN today. So, okay. Um, Cows. Biltong. I, oh, I love Biltong. Okay. Because I can get it here. <laughs> hey. I know a guy. He wants a Biltong. He's at Let's Meet on the Avenue. <laughs> uh, meet is spelled M-E-A-T, isn't it? Yep. Let's meet. All right. But they have well, it there. They've got like, they also have alligator. When you come for our podcast retreat, you can bring me a selection of cured meats and I will in turn provide you with other goods and services. They're not cured. They're raw. Biltong not is curing those meats. cured. Is it cured? Yeah. Is it shelf stable? I don't know. It, was uh, it depends on the, it depends the, on the biltong. Yeah. Biltong is dried meat. Essentially dried. Salted. I thought it was dried meat. Well, okay. speaking of milk, the meat, a kosher showdown. Um, <laughs> how can you tell if people are breeding animals for meat or milk, especially if all the meaty and milky parts aren't preserved in the archaeological record? They don't got they don't got milk bones. Milk, do they? Milk. <laughs> that's different. That's, that's doggy treats. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And um, so that's where population demography comes in. So that oh means my God, yes. looking, the dames. 
<laughs> looking at the age and sex of different animals and learning something from how those distributions fall out, which reminds me of a joke that I came up with when I was suffering through my dissertation data collection, which is why are my data sets like Keith Richards? Why? They're broken down by age and sex. I thought it was pretty good. Okay. So the first thing that we're going to talk about is called the mortality table. Ah, I is, love the new, the, that, that new mortality line from Ikea. No, the <laughs> Hannibal, the Hannibal series. Oh, the mortality table. Uh, no, it's not some sort of weird goth furniture. Oh, it is, great. it's a profile, a data profile created by counting the frequency of male versus female animals and the age of the animals when they died. Ah. So you can tell the age of an animal when it died based on the length of the long bones or wear on teeth. So the long bones um, in humans, as well as most animals, uh, most mammals rather, um, the ends of those long bones, when you are growing as a child, um, they're not completely fused together. So the ends are not completely fused to the shaft of the bone. And the different bones, the, uh, the ends are called epiphyses, and the epiphyses of the bones fuse to the shaft at different times. So based on whether the, the femur is complete, whether the tibia is complete, the radius, ulna, all of those, you can tell basically uh, within within months um, how old an animal was when it died. Um, the other way is to look at the wear on the teeth, and there are ways to tell how old an animal might have been, you know, within a f several months um, based on how worn its teeth is, because as an animal uh, chews its food, its teeth get worn down. Um, so... The, the sex of an animal can also be determined from the bones, and that's mostly based on the size of the bones, but there are also a few structural differences depending on the animal you're looking at. So, for example, male goats have horns. Females don't. Male pigs, sorry, have tusks. Females don't. That kind of thing. So the you get that information and then you create a table showing the distributions of how many females versus males there are in an archaeological assemblage and how many old animals versus young animals so you basically do an age and sex lineup and so that profile can tell you whether these animals were most likely harvested as wild animals or whether they were domesticated because um, if you are hunting wild animals you are generally going to be hunting the weakest individuals in a herd since those are the easiest to get at, right? The youngest or the oldest or sick animals are the ones that are most easily hunted. But in domestic yes. situations, juvenile animals are more likely to survive to maturity, right? So you might expect fewer juveniles and more older animals. Um, on the other hand, the mortality profile of an animal population may also reveal patterns of culling, which is a definite signal of domestication. So culling is deliberately killing um, animals of either a certain age or a certain sex based on uh, what you need from them. So one strategy used in herding cattle is to keep the females into maturity because they are the ones who are producing both milk and future cows, right? And at the same time, uh, males can be, uh, male cows, bulls, can be very territorial or aggressive, so they are the more likely ones to be culled when they're young. So the farmer might kill all but a few of the males for food and then keep a few of them for breeding purposes. So in that kind of animal bone assemblage, you would expect to find a lot of juvenile male bones, but way, way fewer juvenile females. 
And so things like meat, right? If you kill an animal for its meat, that's called a primary product because once you do that, you no longer have that animal. Animals also produce secondary products. Those are things that you can harvest from the animal without seriously hurting or killing them. So things like wool from sheep or milk or eggs from chickens and also things like labor or transportation, right? Because that's a secondary product of, of big animals like, like cows or horses, right? So cows yeah, you got your, can, got can your cows pull. working in an office. <laughs> Typing away Take with care of HR. <laughs> uh, hey, resources. Um, yeah, so labor and transportation, that also counts as a secondary product. So that is something that you can kind of glean from the archaeological profiles that you set up. If, for example, way fewer female sheep are found in the archaeological record and what you're seeing is the bones of much older female sheep, then you can generally get the idea that they were probably keeping these sheep for milk, maybe, since it's the females. Um, they were definitely keeping them to produce more sheep. And you can probably guess that that they may have been using the wool, right? It's very, very hard to see that in the archaeological record if the, the fibers themselves aren't preserved. But you can you can make some educated guesses that way, which is really neat. Yeah. So, um, so you're talking about maybe fibers are persisting, things like that? Eh? Mm -hmm. No? But even if there you aren't... You can find in site assemblages the content and layout of archaeological sites. Um, you can find clues to the presence of domesticated animals. Yeah, even you know, if like, you don't have the bones. Even if you don't have like their eggs or you know, <laughs> sheep eggs or hair yeah. or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. So, for example, the presence of buildings associated with animals, such as pens or stalls or sheds or barns, etc., um, it's an indicator of some level of animal control. A pin or a stall might be identified as a separate structure or a separate part of a residence with evidence for animal dung deposits. Yep. Lots and lots of grass. Yep. <laughs> and so artifacts such as knives for shearing wool or bits and bit guards for horses have been found at sites and interpreted as evidence for domestication. Um, saddles, yokes, leashes and hobbles are also strong circumstantial evidence for the use of domesticated animals. Um, another form of artifact evidence, artifact used as evidence for domestication is art. Um, for example, figurines and drawings of people on horseback or oxen pulling a cart. And I put a, put a bit in that bridle because I'm going to come back to talking about horses okay. and art. <laughs> yeah, I well, I, I have a thing to, to contribute to this episode. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> well, on. I just wanted to mention that um, I did talk about toothware from uh, as a way to determine an animal's age because uh, the teeth grind down as they eat. But also, um, specifically in horses, since you do put a bit in a horse's mouth, you can tell from horse teeth whether or not they have been um, bridled with a bit because that bit also creates wear patterns on the on the teeth that are recognizable and very different from um, the wear from their food. So you can tell from a horse's teeth whether or not it was bridled or not. So that's neat. That's very neat. And speaking mm -hmm. of horse domestication, let's get to our first case study from Kazakhstan. Woohoo! So... Horses were domesticated for milk and riding some 5,500 years ago, or were they? Again, hold on for my contribution here. <laughs> um, according to research based on the large numbers of horse bones recovered from excavations at sites associated with the Bowtie culture. Not 
like Bill Nye. Um, no, not the bow tie that you wear around your neck. <laughs> B-O-T-A-I. Bow tie. Um, bot, maybe bow tie culture. Um, sure. Who flourished. Um, 3700, 3100 BCE. And what is now northern Kazakhstan, a part of a part of Asia in which wild horses were once hunted for their meat and where mare's milk is still drunk, usually fermented into an alcoholic drink called kumis. So wild horses could, in fact, they could drag, drag you away. away. <laughs> um, and so um, I have not had kumis. I remember you asked me that. And I was like, yeah, I texted I have, you out of I the blue. Eaten, I have eaten horse prepared in that style. Mm-hmm. And it was not for me, but well, but you tried it. I know, right? And points, points everybody around me seemed to really be enjoying it, and that's great. Okay, just it just tastes. You look at it, and you're like, it tastes like what a horse looks like. It would taste like, huh? Yep. All right. So researchers at the universities of Exeter, Bristol, and Winchester, or it's in the UK, so maybe it's Munster. Um, no, it's pronounced the, Winchester. It's not pronounced okay. <laughs> Walter. <laughs> it's just pronounced Walter. <laughs> um, the Carnegie Museum of Natural History in Pittsburgh. Aw. Aw. It's where I went when I was little. It's where I Aww. passed out in the bird room. Oh, God. Yeah, I had a fever. Um, and the Kokshatau University in Kazakhstan compared Batai horses' bones with those of the region's wild horses and with the remains of later Bronze Age European horses, which were known to have been domesticated. Um, the Batai horses were much more like the latter than the former, meaning the more like Bronze the domesticated, Age domesticated <laughs> ones than the wild ones, um, suggesting that selection by physical attribute through breeding was already underway in the fourth millennium BCE. Mm -hmm. Jaw and teeth injuries were also found among the Batai bones, consistent with the horses having been bridled and harnessed, possibly for riding or for use as draft animals. Uh, Perhaps the the clenching evidence came from lipid residue traces in Batai pottery derived from mare's milk. So if a horse is standing long enough to let you milk it, it's probably pretty chill. Yep. Chill horse. Real chill horse. Yep. Um, So Alan Otram of the University of Exeter, who I see here reviewed one of Anna's papers once. (laughs) He was really nice about it. He really liked the paper. (laughs) While the other reviewer was... Will remain unnamed. (laughs) I mean, he didn't include his name. Or oh, they cool. didn't include their name and just ripped the paper a new one. But, oh, you know, was, it was um, flawed. It was flawed. <laughs> but it was nice to have okay. Alan Outram's <laughs> feedback. Keep going. Um, lead author of the paper that published those discoveries in the journal Seance said, quote, the domestication of horses is known to have had immense social and economic significance, advancing communications, transport, food production and warfare. Our horses findings indicate known that horses communicators. Were... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like Mr. Ed, Bojack. Yeah. Known communicators. And, Our and findings that indicate that horses were telegraph horse code. 
please continue. I guess it was worth the wait. Um, Our findings indicate that horses were being domesticated around 1,000 years earlier than previously thought. This is significant because it changes our understanding of how these early societies developed. End quote. So, you know how... I said at the beginning of this and then implied heavily that I was going to come back to. um, Give me that payoff. Representative, like um, figural figural evidence of of domesticated animals. Um, There is a fringe theory um, that horses weren't domesticated in the place that we found all the horse bones um, and also wild horses. Five some thousand years ago, but in fact, in Saudi Arabia, and um, this is the evidence for that. Well, so okay, Um, and so this this is this fringe theory is also in my book, um, which is why I know more about it than I necessarily would otherwise. So, um, if you are one of the folks that's lucky enough to see the Roads of Arabia exhibition, the um, the Saudi um, government sponsored um, sort of archaeological survey of uh-huh. um, what is now the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Um, there are some things from a site called Al Makar, um, which is in the current state of Saudi Arabia, um, and it's a Neolithic site. Uh, and so it's about dated to about 9,000 years ago. Um, I, th- I think they were able to do some radiocarbon dating. Um, but um, there is this sculpture thing, this big <laughs> okay. chunk of rock. Um, and in it, what well, on it, the researchers claim that they see evidence of a bit and bridle. And so there are two of these like stone steely things. And Mm -hmm. they say that um, this is obviously a very advanced civilization of the Neolithic and that they domesticated the horses there in the Arabian Peninsula 9,000 years ago. I don't know. Um, Maybe there's not. Yeah, maybe, but probably super not. Um, okay. Well, I so, wanted to give it the benefit of the doubt, but but like hmm. it's it's really it's very tenuous evidence, and it's something that um, this um, it was like the press release about it came out in 2011, and mm-hmm. then I've seen I've like the 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 I just sent you the link so you can look at the photo. Um, yeah, I, I'm looking at it. Yeah, now. so that big one, that big one mm-hmm. that is like it looks more like um, it's pretty chunky. I don't know, like a chunky at at, like, <laughs> like the Star Wars. Yeah, AT&T. yeah, like it. That's more what it looks like. Um, but I've seen it, and it really does look like a big piece of limestone. Like it's not okay. Well, it's not compelling. But because what is now Saudi Arabia has a lengthy tradition of horsemanship. And yeah. like horse breeding. I mean, like Arabian really horses are, are exactly famous. Um, this is an attractive hypothesis for yeah, the Saudi Commission be. for Tourism and Antiquities to put forward. So for this sure. is sort of a somewhat politicized uh, discovery. The first of, of any archaeological discovery that's ever been politicized. 
definitely soup yeah <laughs> absolutely totally unheard of um yep. but the materials coming from al makar like is they're they're very interesting like it's very interesting stuff like um neolithic settlement there's interesting things going on it's great sure but but, but maybe not horse just maybe not domestication of horses because like yeah. there could have been a horse that's fine but just you see that little <laughs> ridge there's like the yeah. little ridge and then the Along other the little ridge yeah. yeah they say that that is um a bridle and reins mm. and like that's a stretch sure is <laughs> so to say the least that is a stretch huh okay well that's what i'm th- contributing thank you something that's very interesting isn't real <laughs> I mean, but it's, I, not, it's, it's not different from your usual. I know, but this one has actual archaeology. I know. That's that great. isn't real. Yeah. Okay. Just like birds. Okay. So. Oh, my God. Another. <laughs> but unlike this. The, bird, the birds were real up until. The Reagan administration. The Reagan administration. <laughs> at which point they replaced them all with drones. God, I hate that. Okay. Um, <laughs> the so birds unlike, are working for the bourgeoisie. Just like that young man in the TikTok video said. You sound 85 years old. <laughs> I feel 85 years old. I hurt myself sleeping, Anna. Like, I am 85 I've done years old. <laughs> I've done that before also. I've also hurt myself sneezing, so. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thank you for your compassion. Um, unlike the maybe appearance of a bridle in this maybe horse um a real giveaway in terms of evidence for domestication are animal burials so how the remains of an animal are placed within an archaeological site may have implications about the animal's status like whether it was domesticated not like whether it was like the mayor faunal remains (laughs) are often found on archaeological (laughs) sites in I like that one, huh? I'm just thinking of like a really bougie horse. <laughs> a horse mayor? You know, yeah. people um, in early New York City used to, um, there were lots of different ways, like like rag peddlers and stuff would have different ways of attracting people over to what they were doing. And one of the ways was putting pants on their horses. <laughs> I learned that in a, in a recent um, dollop episode. Like front pants? Because back pants seem like they would end quickly. I know. That's what I was thinking. And I don't know which side, which which end of the horse the pants were on. I feel like front pants is actually just a shirt. <laughs> yeah. But a horse, like, would you put it? <laughs> put my front well, pants we could, on. We it's could, a cardigan. <laughs> <laughs> we can consider the logistics of front p- pants later. But let's keep talking about animal burials. So faunal Mm. remains are found on archaeological sites in lots of different forms. They may be found in heaps of bone, in a rubbish heap or midden, with other forms of refuse scattered haphazardly around the site or within a purposeful burial. They may be found articulated, which means that the bones are laid out in the form of the animal as they were in life, or as separate pieces or tiny fragments from butchering or being trampled over time. An animal such as a dog, cat, horse, or bird who has been a valuable member of a community may be buried alongside humans in a cemetery for animals or with its owner. And we talked about this in both our dog and our cat episodes. Um, And dog and cat burials are known in many cultures. Horse burials are common in several cultures, such as the Scythians, the Han Dynasty of China, or Iron Age Britain. 
mummies of cats and birds and baboons and crocodiles, but hey, uh, have been found in ancient Egyptian contexts. In addition, large multiple deposits of bones of a single type of animal might suggest the tending of large numbers of animals and thus imply domestication. The presence of fetal or newborn animal bones may also suggest that the animals were being tended since these kind of bones rarely survive without a purposeful burial. They're really small and really fragile. Um, vast horse burials, the burials are vast, not the horses, with skeletal <laughs> remains numbering in the hundreds have been found, such as the mass horse burial site in China um, that we will we'll post a link to it on our show notes. Um, but it was the tomb of a high status man and it was filled with 600 horses arranged very neatly in rows. Um, so here's here's a little little taste of spooktober for you today. Oh, yes, I've already started Homeowner- playing my my um, Halloween carols. Oh God! That's Halloween just, Carol. She gets really excited to the about misfits. Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> so today, homeowners in Ireland are sometimes surprised to find horse skulls under the floorboards of their homes. Uh, these are homes that date to the 16th and 17th centuries, not like built so in the last sometimes, century. Sometimes they're not surprised. They're they're like, oh, that's where it went. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Like these equine deposits were thought to provide good luck to the homestead or protect it from evil. It is said that due to the hollow skulls beneath the ground, the acoustics of the structure were improved, and when danced upon, the skulls would resonate. Um, Yeah, it's just a weird little tidbit that I found. I don't know. Um, So, speaking of spooky, also, Amber, this last bit, serious Claude Holland vibes. Yes. Ancient cultures sometimes mixed and matched animal parts to create strange and misshapen creatures, which they interred for reasons Ah. that researchers still speculate on. The noble jackalope. Indeed. I do like a jackalope. Ancient burial sites in Britain have revealed the combination of different animal bones intentionally combined, creating what seems to be mythological beasts. What were they doing? I know, exactly, right? It's so so compelling. What were they doing? What? Yeah, what, what were you guys doing? Late Iron Age British burial sites include hybrid animal forms such as <clears throat> a cow with the legs of a horse, I mean, a sheep okay. with its own head, but then also a bull's head on its butt, Cat and dog. a horse with cow horns. That one, that one's, you know, it is believed I mean, by researchers. It's really like a, like a weird animal sandwich where you're like, okay, fine. What? Okay, fine. <laughs> well, it's like, it depends what end you start from, because... Yeah. If you're starting with that sheep with its own head and you're like, fine, sheep, whoa. Yeah. Um, It is believed by researchers that the ancient Britons believed in the power of mythological creatures and added them to human burial sites as potential guardians, wise counselors, or monsters. I mean, sure. The majority. Yeah, you have no evidence for that whatsoever. No. It would have been like, this will freak them out. Yep. Yeah, it could have been someone just like, "Eh, look what I did. The majority of such hybrid skeletons, yes, yes, were found weird taxidermy. Yes, in pits <laughs> under entrances to ancient houses. So here is a report on one such site and quick content warning for human sacrifice. The Celtic inhabitants of a small, industrious Iron Age settlement in what is today Dorset, England, are believed to have sacrificed a young woman by slitting her throat before burying her body in a curious arrangement of bones. Significantly, these animal bones had been deliberately sorted to mirror the bones of the dead woman. The animal's skull fragments formed the surface her head rested on, while the animal's leg bones formed the surface her legs rested on. So, you know, like went with like. 
Archaeologists also unearthed a series of bizarre hybrid animals in which the bones of different animals, again, intentionally combined together in what is reminiscent of the mythological beasts of ancient cultures. Um, so there were two examples in which a jawless cow skull had been deliberately paired with a horse's lower jaw. Another find was a complete dog with three cow lower jaws radi- radiating from it. Other ritual what? burials of it. <laughs> what I is just this designed HR Giger stuff? This is I so... just designed your first tattoo. Other ritual burials what? of animals discovered at the site include five additional horse heads, 15 more cow heads, three complete pigs and three more complete dogs. Who knows? Most of these sacrificed and combined animals were in storage pits under entrances to the ancient houses on the site. And uh, these sacrifices appear to have been from the late 1st century BCE. Using geophysical and other scientific dating methods, thanks, the archaeologists, led by Miles Russell and Paul Cheatham, determined the community was inhabited from about 100 BCE to 10 BCE. The Celtic settlement consisted of around 150 to 200 roundhouses. The people, possibly of the Durotrigus tribe, I don't know, engaged in a variety of industries, including pottery making, textile manufacturing, and working of iron, lead, and copper. Well, As and of also 20- making, like, nightmare animals. Yeah. That's also but an industry. It seemed to be, like, an- their chief export was nightmare <laughs> it animals. was chimeras. Yeah. As of 2015, the excavations were ongoing. Um, and so this is at Northwest Farm near Winterbourne Kingdom. Nope. Near Winterbourne Kingston in Dorset, which is a really big. It's a 32,000 square meter or 7.9 acre archaeological site. That's huge. According to classical sources, the ancient Celts were animists. OK, classical sources. So like Caesar. The ancient Celts were animists who honored the forces of nature and believed that certain animals were messengers of the spirits or gods. So I guess it makes some sense that there would be an animal component to ritual offerings. But like, there's no way to know. Why didn't Caesar mention any of this? Oh, because it didn't help him win a war. Oh, God. Hey, fans of archaeology, head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop and click the link to our Tee Public store. You'll find some awesome designs that you can pick up on t-shirts, mugs, and more. From our Ask an Archaeologist series to the worst idea the Life in Ruins podcast ever had, slamming agriculture. I mean, seriously. Again, that's www.arcpodnet.com forward slash shop for some archaeo swag. Chris Webster here to tell you about one of our affiliates, Timular. That's T-I-M-E-U-L-A-R. Whether you work from home or can go to the office or even to the field, Timular is an app, and if you want it, a physical device that helps you track your time down to the minute. Have a hard time separating your work-life balance? Set a weekly goal for tracked work hours and stop when you hit that goal. It's right in the app. So support the APN and finally start accurately tracking your time by heading to arcpodnet.com forward slash timeular. That's arcpodnet.com forward slash timeular to get on track today. But wait, there's more. Well, let's stay on that spooky, spooky train of fascinating and mysterious animal burials because I have another one. Here, that is also a callback to our Mound Builders episode. Oh, God, too soon. And to our Cats episode. 
Yeah, I upset someone on Facebook about mounds, but yeah, you whoopsies you made a person on the internet mad. Um, about two thousand years ago, the Hopewell people of Western Illinois buried a bobcat on the outer edge of a burial mound that was usually reserved for humans. In a touching gestures, the creature was <laughs> sorry typo. I'm sorry. <laughs> Sometimes it happens. Okay, in a. And a rather touching gesture, the creature was adorned with a necklace of bear teeth and seashells. Aww. See? Are you sad you made fun of me now? He's a kitty. The mound is one of 14. uh, This could be Calypso's friend up the street. That cat is so big. The mound is one of 14 located on the top of a bluff overlooking the Illinois River, about 80 kilometers north of St. Louis. Um, the Hopewell people lived along rivers in the northeastern and midwestern United States between 200 and 500, 200 BCE and 500 CE in what is known as the Middle Woodland Period. Um, their society consisted of a number of communities linked by a trade network called the Hopewell Exchange System, um, <laughs> which also sounds like a prog rock band. <laughs> That's it. Um, they buried their dead in mounds arranged in groups, one of the most impressive of which is the Mound City Group in Ohio. Their villages generally consisted of rectangular buildings made from wattle and daub. Uh, and they often used traded, i.e. non-local, materials such as copper, mica, and obsidian to craft their works of art. Hopewell expert Kenneth Farnsworth said that the villagers would gather together to bury people in the mounds, which also served as markers signifying that the locality belonged to the tribal ancestors. The mounds were initially excavated in the 80s in the face of a highway construction project proposed for the area. Cool. Um, The largest of them, 28 meters across and two and a half meters high, contained the remains of 22 people who had been laid to rest around a central tomb containing the skeleton of a child. The remains of a small animal were also discovered, along with seashells and bear teeth pendants. The archaeologists initially thought the animal was a canine, although the Hopewell usually buried their dogs in or around the village, not in a mound. Enter Angela Perry, a PhD student at the University of Durham in the UK, um, who discovered some years later that the animal was in fact a cat. Um, yeah, so she, she, was, she was a PhD student at the time. Sorry, it's just okay. she's not now. Yeah. Okay. She's... She has gotten her PhD. She is now Dr. Perry. Yeah, she's doing just fine. Okay. Um, I run ahead. Um, Angela Perry, who was then a PhD student at the University of Durham in the UK, discovered some years later that the animal was, in fact, a kitty. Um, She was interested in ancient burials of dogs and was doing some research at the museum. Um, This is like the beginning of the Monster Mash. Late one night. I was Um, working in the museum late one night. (laughs) And I found a kitty. Keep going. Um, yeah. And she encountered the remains of the animal. Ah! <laughs> oh, remains. Um, she said, quote, as soon as I saw the skull, I knew it was definitely not a puppy. Yep. Okay. It was a cat of some kind. Um, and those doctor, <laughs> those, those skills <laughs> um, landed her um, at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany, where she's now a zoo archaeologist after Mm -hmm. analyzing the bones she found that the animal was a bobcat aged between four and seven months at the time of death there was no evidence that the bobcat had been sacrificed or violently killed in any way moreover it had been placed in the mound with a great deal of care for one thing its paws had been placed together fancy paws so it was obvious that it has been tossed into the grave so they they placed it 
Mm-hmm. Gosh, that's sweet. Yeah. Kenneth Farnsworth was astounded when Perry told him about this. He had never seen anything like this before, as the mounds were reserved specifically for humans. This meant that someone had appealed specially to someone else in order to have the bobcat buried there. Probably had to fill so, out some forms. The bobcat, Lynx Rufus, often appears in Native American legends in association with the coyote. The coyote? How do, how do you actually... Is it I coyote? say coyote. Is it, okay. Uh-huh. It's coyote. I mean, they... coyote. Okay. If you're like an um, old timey Westerner, maybe you say coyote, but I can't get away with that because I'm from Boston. The two animals being linked with fog and wind, respectively. Oh. For example, they are depicted in the mythology of the Nez Perce as being opposites as as being opposites as part of a philosophical concept of dualism. Um, the bobcat is also mentioned in Shawnee legends as having been outwitted by a rabbit who takes refuge in a tree. The bobcat tries to smoke the rabbit out with a fire, but the embers fly all over the place, covering the bobcat's fur, thereby giving the bobcat its distinctive spotted markings. It got scorched. Yeah. Another tribe, the Mojave, uh, practiced ritualistic dreaming of the bobcat and the cougar in the hope that this would help them develop superior hunting skills. It was a bob kitten. A Robert kitten. Perry, a Robert kitten. Perry believes a member of the community had brought the bobcat in from the wild and tried to rear it, as bobcats can easily be tamed when young. Then it becomes a bobby cat. Oh. Um, oh. She also believes that the necklace was a form of collar and that therefore it's likely the animal had been a pet. However, the fact that it had been placed in a burial mound rather than along with domesticated dogs in a separate location suggests it may have also have had a spiritual significance. The discovery might also provide information about the domestication of other animals, such as dogs and the modern domestic cat. Um, so zooarchaeologist Melinda Zader. I worked with her. Um, She's awesome. I see that. In your, she she taught me here. bones. She taught you about bones. Um, she says that it is, quote, surprising and marvelous and extremely special, end quote. Um yeah, she was she was asked to comment on on and this. She's discovery. like, aww. Yeah, she's like, gosh, that's Thank great. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, she's so great. Anyway, um, so that all of that together is just a little part of how archaeologists can use animal bones to learn about the roles of those animals and their histories as domesticates. So like we said up top, domestication is an ongoing process and it's different everywhere you look. So we didn't even really touch on llamas and alpacas in Mezzo and South America, for example, and we talk about chickens or guinea pigs or lots of other species. So we will save that for another time. Okay. Well, then that's that. (laughs) (laughs) that'll do pig that'll do pug um we'll be back in your ear soon with new episodes which you can find on apple podcasts on spotify on google play and wherever else you get your pods clearly people have been getting their pods on spotify because now you no longer have to search the dirt podcast archaeology anna amber yeah, oh, great. For us to show up in results. Great news. Great um, news. Yeah. Thanks, folks. We show up on Spotify now. So thanks, everybody. <laughs> yeah. And you can super duper help us out by le- leaving reviews and stars at all those places, especially on Apple Podcasts, because it helps people find us. And we want people to find us. Yeah. 
And another place you can find us is on the Facebook at mm. The Dirt Podcast, on Twitter at Dirt Podcast, and on Instagram at The Dirt Pod. Um, and all of that comes together on our website, thedirtpod.com. And if you want to send us an email um, about your pet bobcat, you can do that at thedirtpodcast at e- gmail.com. I almost yep. said at email.com. <laughs> <laughs> you are 85. I know. <laughs> uh, no matter what age you are, you can support us on Patreon. We put out extra. No, bonus I think you have to be like our... at least fourteen. I think. Okay. Well, you or your parent can <laughs> yeah. support us on Patreon. Uh, we put out extra bonus content for our subscribers from video content where you can watch our faces record these episodes. Uh, we also put out three bonus episodes a month for our various tiers of subscribers. So you can get that sweet, sweet podcast extra goodness uh, at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. We love you. Goodbye. Bye. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Chris Webster here. Thanks for listening and sharing this episode across your socials. It really helps us get the word out. If you don't know how to share from your podcast app, just look for a share icon on Apple devices. It's usually a box with a little arrow coming out of it, something like that, and share it across your socials right from in the app. If you'd like to support us a little more and get some extras in the process, then head over to arcpodnet.com members for some options. That's arcpodnet.com members to support archaeological education and outreach.